Good singing. It's so good to be back on Wednesday night. I, I, I tell you, I've told you before, I love, for some reason, the preaching on the Wednesday night service better than, better than any message that I do during the week. I like Wednesday night the best. Today, I was at home writing the, the last message in this kind of mini-series that we're doing on submission and principles of submission. And uh, I've got a couple of messages that are coming up uh, at the end that I, I really liked dealing with and studying. A two-part message on principles for the workplace. And the first part of that message is about slavery. I'm going to spend almost the whole time talking about slavery. And some of you can probably identify with that. But I'll talk about slavery. And the second part of the message, I, I talk about uh, other principles for how we apply that to principles for the workplace today. And I was just thinking as I was writing that message, how much that I like my job. I get to go to work, and I really enjoy my job. I, I have a little trouble getting up on Monday mornings, but that has nothing to do with the job. It's just getting up on Monday morning. But after I get here, I'm ready to go. But uh, it, it's good to have the opportunity to start study God's Word. Well, let's look tonight in Ephesians chapter 5, if you would, please. And this evening, we come to the last message of chapter 5. But actually, it's going to take me two Wednesday nights to preach the last message. This is part number one. From the 18th verse in chapter 5 of Ephesians on through uh, chapter 6, verse number 9, uh, Paul is dealing with the subject of the filling of the Spirit. And particularly, he's talking about the subject of submission. And he shows us that a Spirit-filled Christian is one who learns about submission and authority in different areas of his life. And that includes, of course, uh, the... uh, uh, Christians submitting to one another in certain areas of authority and understanding that. It means wives being in submission to their husbands and then husbands to the Lord. Paul talks about children and parents and also about servants and their masters and all those things are very important areas. In the past two sermons, we've been dealing with husbands and wives and we're talking about the comparison that Paul makes here between marriage and the church. And as we talked about principles for submissive wives and principles for, uh, for husbands or for loving husbands, both of those things are patterned after Christ's love for us and also Christ's submission to his own heavenly Father. Well, this evening, we're going to take one more look at this, and we're only we're looking at the subject from another side this evening. We're talking about the Christian's relationship to the church. So in this two-part message, I'm going to speak to you about principles for devoted Christians. There are two heaven-sent institutions that God has given us on this earth. The first one was marriage, and the second is the institution of the church. And when God gave marriage all the way back in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, he intended that to be a foreshadowing or a picture of the next institution that was coming, which is the church. God didn't think just simply think that marriage would be a a good way for people to get together and a good way for parents to raise children. It wasn't so much that, but I think that God was really, even though that's very important, God was really preparing us to understand better when it came time for him to, to institute the church. He gave us marriage as a an example so we could better understand this very special love that Christ has for his people and especially those who become members of the church. Now this evening, I want to talk to you about why all Christians ought to be a member of the Lord's church. Our text verses are Ephesians five twenty-five through verse number 27. So if you'd stand with me, please, we'll read these verses. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse number 25 
Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to preach your word. As we contemplate the church tonight, Lord, just help us to really understand how important our church is to us. What a great privilege it is to be a member of this body. So bless us as we preach tonight. Keep our hearts focused on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back in early 2002, uh, Pastor Cregan came to me and asked me if I had any information or any articles on the subject of why Christians should be members of a church. And I thought that surely then of all the materials that I have, I mean, I have hundreds of books and pamphlets and all different kinds of things on many, many different subjects. And I thought, surely there must be among all of this material that I have something that has to do with the subject of why people ought to become a member of the church. Well, I started to look through all the material that I had, and I, I looked through just about everything that I could think of, and I couldn't come up with anything on this particular subject. And what Pastor Cregan actually wanted was some kind of small pamphlet that we could put into the uh, new member's packet or also that he could use that when there are people that come to church and they're kind of sitting on the fence about whether they want to become members that we'd be able to hand them this pamphlet that would explain to them why that they need to be members of the church. Well, I couldn't find anything. And so I told him that I would be happy to write a pamphlet myself and we would be able to use that. So I did do that. And in May of 2002, I wrote a little pamphlet called, Why Do I Need to Be a Member of the Church? And if anybody's interested in that, we, we, still have, we still have that available. But I decided that what I would do is I would take that essay and I would make it the basis for the sermon that I want to preach tonight. So this evening, I'm going to share some of the information that's in that pamphlet, only I'm going to do it in a much expanded format. And the main premise of the message tonight is if Christ so loved the church and he was willing to give himself for the church, that the church must be something that's very special to him. And if we're going to be fully devoted Christians, then surely we have to recognize that Christ wants us to become members of the church. And very simply, I would say, you can't love Christ if you don't love his body, if you don't love his church. But before we begin with that, we really kind of need to get some uh, important information out of the way. There are a lot of people, in fact, most of the Christian world, by far the majority of people in the Christian world, accept the theory of the universal invisible church. And those who believe in universal invisible church actually believe that whenever a person becomes a Christian, at the moment that they receive Christ, that they become a part of his church. They become a part of the body right then. And... Um, what they're actually doing is, is making the individual synonymous with the church. So that that very moment that you trust him, you become a part of the church. Well, I don't really believe, and I, I don't think that there's any evidence to support that theory in the scriptures. There are 113 times in the New Testament where we have the word, Greek word ekklesia that's translated as church. And by far the vast majority of those times where it's translated, it refers to a particular church in a particular location. There are places in scripture where the word church is used in an institutional sense 
such as when we talk about marriage being an institution, the church is talked about that way. It's also translated in a way in which it speaks about the prospective sense. And here in Ephesians 5.25, I think we have one of those instances where, where Paul is using the church in the prospective sense. But nowhere do we find in the Scriptures where the word church ever refers to an invisible body, a body that could never meet together. The practical usage of the word church in the New Testament would prevent it from having that kind of meaning. And so unless Jesus coined a a completely different word, just use a, a completely different meaning than what the people at that time would have understood then we have to accept that what the New Testament is really talking about is a local, visible church. This is a church that you can see, a church where the members meet together, they actually come together. And as I say, unless Christ was just presenting something totally unfamiliar with this word when he used it, then we have to accept that New Testament meaning. So for those reasons, and there are many others, we we reject the theory of the universal invisible church, and we take the New Testament usage of the word, which I believe means that the church is local and visible. So what that means then is that when you get saved, you don't automatically become a part of the church, but rather you have to be added to the church. First you get saved, and then you are added to the church. And the way that we believe that people are added to the church is through the ordinance of baptism. In Acts 2, verse 41, the scripture says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Well, it's evident from reading the scripture that these people were added to something. Well, what was it they were added to? There had to be something in existence that they were added to. Well, what they were added to was the church that was already in existence. There were 120 members of this church already there that had been meeting together. They were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who were added to that already existing local church. Now, when we talk about the church, understand that we, we mean the body of Christ. So body of Christ and church are synonymous terms. Now, there are some independent Baptists that are confused about this because they say that they believe in the local visible church, but they take a scripture like 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13, where it says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And they say that this is Holy Spirit baptism and that all Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Well, we've talked about this when we studied uh, the Holy Spirit in an earlier lesson, but... I don't believe that there's any such thing as Holy Spirit baptism today. And so you can't be baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. But that couldn't be a proper interpretation anyway for somebody who who believes in local church because then you'd have to uh, say that there's a difference of meaning between body of Christ and church. But those two things are actually synonymous terms. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13, can't refer to Holy Spirit baptism, but I believe rather it refers to water baptism. Through water baptism, we are baptized into the body of Christ. Well, that being said, that when a person receives Christ, he does become a Christian, but he's not yet a part of the church. Now, according to Acts 2.41, he becomes a part of the church by the authority of baptism in a New Testament church. So we have many saved people then, people that are saved, that have not yet become members of the Lord's church. 
Well, why do I need to be a member of the church? Well, I think Paul makes it very clear to us here in Ephesians 5.25. He talks about how Christ loved the church, and he's used in this passage of Scripture the idea of marriage. And he talks about how that marriage is a union between a man and a wife, and this is one flesh that's been melded together into one body. And when we're talking about the body of Christ, we're talking about a group of Christians who have been attached to Christ in in a special sanctifying love, in a special way in which Christ has a relationship with no other people. Now, folks that refuse to join the church and become a part of the church are rejecting then the body of Christ. Well, I've met some people, perhaps you have too, that would say, well, I I really don't want to become a member of the church because I don't like organized religion. Well, the New Testament is all about organized religion. I mean, this is what Christ did in the New Testament. He organized a church. And if you don't like organized religion, then you'd have to say, well, I just don't like the body of Christ, and I don't like Christ. There are a lot of organized religions that are bad. You ought to stay away from them. They're not good for us. But a person ought not to divorce himself from the idea of becoming a member of the Lord's church just because there's somebody out there who has perverted the idea. I mean, we we have the truth of God's word that teaches we need to be a part of of the church. About a year ago... Uh, there was a man who came to our church. He he came in, I think it was to one of the dinners that we were having. And I, and I was sitting talking with him in the afternoon at one of these dinners. And uh, he asked me if he could play the organ. Well, I asked him, I said, are you a member of a church? And he said, oh, no, I don't like organized religion. So I guess he thought that it was all right for him to play the organ and display his talents for us. But he was just a little bit above us because he he didn't think that he ought to be a member of the church. Well, I wasn't going to permit that. Well, let's talk about some things concerning the importance of church membership. First, we're going to discuss the priority of church membership. We're going to spend the rest of, uh, of tonight talking about this, the priority of church membership. Ephesians 5.25 makes the priority of church membership very clear. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So this is the institution that Christ gave himself for. It was his purpose to have a special people called out for his name. He would put these people into an organization and they would continue his work and his mission in the world after he left this world. Christ loved the church enough to die for it and If he did, which the Bible says that he did, then that shows us that he had the highest regard, the highest priority for his church. And if Christ thought so, then every one of us ought to think so as well. Now, there are are some special things that the church does that you simply cannot get anywhere else. I mean, these are things that are under the purview of the church, and you can't get this anywhere else. The first thing is that the church promotes truth. The church promotes truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul wrote, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is the institution that God put into this world to uphold the truth. The doctrines of God's word, these were entrusted to the church, and God has not given any individual the responsibility to be the guardian and the bastion of truth. 
Truth does not belong to the individual. Truth is perverted and truth will suffer whenever you take it out from under the context of the church. And when Paul was writing here to Timothy, he was writing to a young man who had been ordained into the ministry. He's there for a special purpose that God had called him in this church. But Paul did not say to Timothy, Timothy, you are the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, Timothy was to teach the truth. He was to know the doctrines of God's word. But God had not entrusted Timothy to be the one who was the pillar and ground. The church is the very foundation for truth. Now, many of the New Testament epistles are written that they might uh, address the areas of truth. They're written to New Testament churches. Paul tells them how to conduct themselves. He explains God's word to them. He talks about the order of the church to them. And he tells them that they are to hold on to those truths. They are to preach those truths. And they are to uphold all of those truths. The church as an institution has the responsibility to perpetuate truth. And the reason the church can do this is because it's a surviving organization. It will always be here. Christ has promised it perpetuity. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus promised that there would be a church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Nothing can stop the church. And so in every generation, the church is here and the church upholds truth and it passes it along to the next generation. Well, the proof of that is that we're sitting here tonight in Berean Baptist Church. Here we are 2,000 years later after the New Testament and we're standing here. I'm preaching to you the same truth that the apostles preach and we're still upholding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell many people that come and join our church or desire to join with us, I tell them we are an historic Baptist church. And I tell people we don't go back to what Baptists today or what those have injected into the Baptist church as doctrine over the past hundred years. I don't tell them to go back and look at that. I don't send them back to somebody like John R. Rice or, or back to Billy Sunday or to uh, Charles Finney or anyone like, anyone like that. They have to go back further than that. They've got to go back to Gill and they've got to go back to Keech and, and back to Bunyan and back to Spurgeon. Go back to the ancient Waldenses and yes, even go back all the way to Jesus Christ and the apostles. I mean, if you want to find out where this truth came from and what we're standing on today, it's the word that was delivered by Jesus Christ to the apostles. And those apostles gave that truth to the people that they ministered to as they organized different churches. So the church upholds the truth. You ought to be a member of the church because it's the only place that will preach the same old truths from generation to generation, the very same thing that was delivered to the saints. So the church promotes truth. The second thing is the church promotes teaching. The church is the place for teaching. Today, it's popular for people to get their religious training from somebody who's selling the latest book, their, their latest, greatest ideas. People get their religion from parachurch organizations and from people who have never been given the authority for preaching the word of God. The primary place for teaching is in the church. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. 
Luke records in the book of Acts. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So the place that God has ordained for teaching is the church. And if a person refuses membership in the church and they refuse to assemble with God's people in the church, then they are refusing to be in the place where God's word is taught. Now, if I, what I said a moment ago about the church being the pillar and ground of the truth, if that is true according to the scriptures, then the place that you have to be is where the truth is being taught. And if the church upholds it, you need to be a part of the church because that's where you'll receive the right instruction from God's Word. So teaching that comes to us outside of the church and those who are make it their business to teach uh, gospel principles or whatever outside of the church, they cannot stand in the truth. Outside organizations will never sustain themselves in the truth. And there's a reason for that. It's because a person who goes out and usurps God's authority on where teaching should be done is already in rebellion. They're already in disobedience and they're already entangled in heresy. So it's not going to be long before truth does not prevail. But in the New Testament, people learned about Jesus. They learned about his teachings. They learned about all of these things in the church. And that's where God's teaching is to remain. Thirdly, the church promotes the ordinances. What are the ordinances? Well, there are two that have been given to us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The first act of obedience after a person is saved is baptism. Well, who has the right to baptize? Who, who can baptize? Can just anybody go out and decide to baptize? Brian Petro and Dave, Dave uh, Morrow, I believe it is. Uh, Dave Morrill, Dave Morrill just decide, you know, I've got a swimming pool in my backyard. I can, he's got a hot tub. I, I can baptize people. Well, no, because they've not been authorized to baptize according to the New Testament. The, the authority for baptism and the right to baptize comes through God's church. Now, this is very clear in the New Testament. The commission to preach and baptize is a church ordinance. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Well, when we read that, those verses of Scripture, who is this that Jesus is talking to? Well, he's speaking to the apostles. He's given the commission to the apostles as they constitute the first church. What Jesus is not doing, he is not giving this commission to the apostles as individuals. Well, how do we know that? Because Jesus says right here that he will be with them until the end of the world. Did any of the apostles live to the end of the world? You know, I... I, I kind of think the world is still here today, isn't it? And I don't know of anybody who's an apostle, so he couldn't be talking to that because, about that because all of the apostles are dead. So he must be giving this commission to the church, this special body that he's organized and called out to do his work. Well, baptizing is a part of the commission, and Jesus never trusted baptism to any one single individual. Now, we go back to John the Baptist. Of course, he received his authority directly from God. But John the Baptist baptized all the material of that very first church. He baptized all of the apostles. Now, if, if 
Jesus had then given baptism individually to the apostles, then it would have died out with them. But baptism wasn't given to them because they aren't perpetual. Well, what is perpetual? The church is. The church is the surviving organization. And so the church has the authority. So if a person does not have New Testament church authority for their baptism, then very simply, they have an invalid baptism. Now, according to Acts 2.41, as we spoke a moment ago, baptism is the way by which you're added to the church. So if you're added to the church, then the church with baptismal authority has the right to decide who will be baptized. Now, when you come, when people come before the church here, you notice that I always call for a vote. And that's because the only ones who have a right to decide whether a a profession of faith is a credible profession of faith is the people of God. We baptize people upon credible professions of faith. So we take a vote. Well, I've never, all the time that I've been a Christian, I can't recall where anybody who came before the church and said, I want to be baptized, I'm saved, that we ever refuse to baptize anyone. But we certainly have that right. It could be possible that there would be a person who would come into the church and they've never shown any evidence of repentance and faith. And there may be some of you out here that, that know this person and, and you know that, well, there's something going on here they're, they're, that's not true. They haven't shown repentance and faith and you may decide to vote against a person for baptism. Well, what would you do in a case like that? Well, you'd have to do what John the Baptist said. When the Pharisees came to John the Baptist for baptism, he said, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. In other words, show me something in your life that tells me that you've actually repented of your sin and there's a change that's taken place. Well, who could decide that? I mean, who, who, who's the, who, who has the authority to decide that if that change has really taken place? Well, the ones who have the authority is God's church. They survey the situation and they decide, is this a credible profession of faith? And they need to know that because that person is becoming a part of this body. It's our job here to protect Christ's body. And so that's why we want to be very clear about it when we bring somebody in the church through baptism that we know that there has been a change in their life. So you have baptism then. That's one of the ordinances that uh, Christ has given to the church, and individuals have not been entrusted with the authority to baptize. When I baptize, it's because Berean Baptist Church has given me the authority to take people in the water over there and to baptize them. Well, then there's another ordinance that, that Christ gave the church, and that's the Lord's Supper. And nowhere in the New Testament do we find that the Lord's Supper is ever celebrated without the assembling of God's people. Now, if we go back to Acts chapter 2 again, the proper order is faith, baptism, church membership, and then the Lord's Supper. So let me read this to you again. Then they that gladly received his word, there, there's your faith, that's believing the gospel. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, that's the next thing. And the same day were added unto them, that's church membership. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. The breaking of bread there is talking about the Lord's Supper. So you have somebody saved, Somebody baptized, somebody a member of the church, fourth thing, they can take the Lord's Supper. I was speaking to a prospective missionary uh, not long ago. Uh, he had filled out one of our missionary questionnaires. And there was a question on our form about the Lord's Supper. And it asked, would you willingly and knowingly baptize or, or rather administer the Lord's Supper to an unbaptized person? 
And on his questionnaire, he wrote that anybody who is saved is invited to the Lord's Supper, and we don't have any right to discriminate. So in other words, what he was saying is that he took the authority for the supper, taking the supper out from the hands of the church. A person could refuse baptism. He could refuse to be a part of the Lord's church. And yet he could take this supper that was instituted by Christ, given to his apostles who were all baptized members of the church and say, that's not necessary. So he's saying you could be totally disobedient to the Lord in these areas. And yet you would still be qualified to take the Lord's supper. Well, what did Paul say about it? Well, interestingly enough, he, he commented about this. He commented about disobedience in the supper when he was writing to the Corinthian church. Now, take note, he's writing to a church as he talks about the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians 11, verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What are divisions? Well, divisions are differences about doctrine. It's differences about church protocols. And Paul said that there are heresies among you. I don't know if there were any unbaptized persons among these group, uh, in this group, but could you imagine, even for a moment, that Paul would not consider it heresy to have people to refuse to be baptized, Christians refuse to be baptized, and not demand that obedience and membership in the Lord's church before they could take the Lord's Supper? I can't even imagine that. Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, I always make reference to or I read these scriptures from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 29. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, if you do what Paul tells us to do here, if you examine yourself, you look at your Christian life, do you think that you would not very quickly notice whether you had been baptized or not? I mean, would that be discernible to you that you haven't been obedient to this very first command that God has given? Now, Paul talks about baptism and about entrance into the church. Paul's writing here to a church about the Lord's Supper. And so it's very plainly evident to us that the Lord's Supper is a church institution. This is given to his church. So a person who is out of fellowship with the church, and I mean out of fellowship on any major doctrine that we might have, if you're out of fellowship with the church, you're out of fellowship with Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And so when you're out of fellowship with the body of Christ, you are also out of fellowship with him. So how can you fellowship with him when you refuse to fellowship with the body or to be obedient to the commands that he's given? So why should you be a member of church? Well, this is the only place where you can receive the ordinances. You can't get baptism and you can't get the Lord's Supper anyplace else. You are commanded to be obedient in baptism and then Jesus said that we are to observe the supper until he comes again. And both of those are commands that you cannot obey unless you're willing to subject yourself to the authority of the church and then enter into the fellowship of the church. Now, let me add one more part to this because there are a lot of people who have questions about this particular practice that we have at Berean, and that is the practice of closed communion. 
Closed communion just simply means that you must be a member of this church before you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper with us. Well, if the principle of the, Lord's, uh, of the local church is correct, and the New Testament teaches that the church represents Christ's body in a particular locality, then the supper must be confined to that body. Now, as a member of Brian Baptist Church, you are a member of this particular body. And if the analogy that Paul uses and and all these biblical references is correct as he talks about the body, then we need to understand that the body is a whole. Your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs, all of that is part of the body. And this is not part of somebody else's body. This is part of your body. Well, if a person comes into the church and he's not a part of the body, that would be just like an arm or a leg trying to attach itself to your body and saying, I'm your arm and I'm your leg. Now, where Paul deals here with this whole issue of the husband and the wife, I think one of the reasons that he does this is to make it very clear to us what Christ means by the body. You see in in verse number 28 that Paul says, a husband is to love his wife as his own body. And you'll notice there that he doesn't say, love your wife as you love your body. He says, love your wife as your body. In other words, he's saying your wife is your body. And he says, a man that loveth his wife also loveth himself. So do you see the meaning he's trying to get across here? Your wife, men, she is your body. Not as your body, as you love your body, but as your body. That's the way you love her. Can can you see the distinction I'm trying to make there? Okay, well, I can go on. So if we compare that to the church then, there's no outsider who could be a part of this body. You see, you can't be a part of the body until you've been wedded to the body. You can't be a part of this body until you've gone through the proper procedures. The proper procedures are that you must enter the church through baptism. You become a part of the church that way. Or you must be baptized in in another church of like faith and order, and you transfer your membership here, and, and this body agrees to take you in as a part of its body. So for a person just to come in from the outside and begin to take the Lord's Supper, uh, then they are not attached to this body. And that would be wrong for the person to do that. Now, the second reason that we practice closed communion is because of church discipline. We exercise no authority over anyone who is not a part of this body. That's one of the reasons that we believe that the universal church theory, it it, it can't be true. I mean, you can't possibly exercise authority over invisible members in a a body that never meets and and doesn't have a visible organization. How, How could you discipline somebody that way? And yet Paul talks about church discipline. And he, and he speaks about divisions that were in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks there about disciplining an offending member. And what they did was they excluded that member from the fellowship, uh, from the fellowship of the church and also from the fellowship of the supper. So you see, these are reasons that figure into the practice of closed communion. We can only exercise discipline over those that we can see and are actually a part of this body. So the sum of all this comes down to the impossibility of practicing the ordinances that are given by Christ unless the person is a part of Christ's church. You have no right to baptism unless you submit yourself to church authority. You have no right to the Lord's Supper unless you become a part of Christ's body. Now, let's finish then part number one of this message with the fourth priority of the church, and that is the church promotes evangelism. 
And I don't put this part fourth because I think it's fourth in priority because I haven't numbered anything here in, in order of priority. I would be correct in saying that everything that I've just talked about is number one on the list. All of it's first, and I'd be correct in that. But evangelism is the church's priority and the church's prerogative. Now, we go back to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 again. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, the same reason for the perpetuation of the ordinances also holds true for the perpetuation of the gospel. Now, evangelism, if evangelism means the preaching of the gospel, and, that, and that's exactly what it is, it couldn't be given to the apostles as individuals because if it had been, then in one generation, the gospel would have died out. And so when the apostles are gone, then the gospel is gone. But the command for evangelism was given to the apostles as they constituted the church. And so because Christ promised perpetuity to the church, then in each generation the gospel will live on because Christ promises there will always be a church. So it would be impossible for us to read Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 and conclude that Christ has given the ordinances to the church, but he's given the preaching of the gospel to individuals. You couldn't conclude that. That's why whenever a missionary comes knocking on our door and he wants support from our church, that I always ask him, what church sent you? You must have local church authority before you have any authority to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't have a church, you don't have authority. Now, by extension then, as Christ is head of the church, the church is the one who has the right to give the authority to individuals to preach the gospel. So that means that parachurch organizations have no authority for preaching. Now, you can, you can list all the organizations that you like to. Many of these organizations do great benevolent works. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, the authority for those groups to do that is non-existent unless the church has actually given them that authority. We had a discussion uh, on this in the Sunday morning forum class a few weeks ago, and I, I was making some comments about the Gideons. How many of you know what the Gideons are? Just about everybody? Well, years ago, I was a member of the Gideons. And there were various different reasons why I dropped out of that, but, but one of the reasons was over this very issue. When the Gideons started out, at the, about the beginning of the last century, they had in mind that what they would do is they would pass out Bibles, give out Bibles to people who didn't have one. And I am in perfect agreement with that. I see nothing wrong with that, giving Bibles out. I can't find anything wrong with that. But then later, what the Gideons started to do was they started evangelistic practices. Now, they're a group. They have no allegiance to any church. They're a mixture of various denominations. And some of those denominations do not preach salvation by grace through faith alone. In the Gideons, there are people who are members of the churches of Christ. And if you know anything about them, uh, the churches of Christ teach baptismal regeneration. So the question becomes, what particular gospel is any particular group of Gideons preaching? Now, according to Paul, anybody who preaches a legalistic system of salvation by works is not preaching a true gospel. So my contention was, 
How can I be a part of a group that has no authority for preaching the gospel? They have no accountability to anyone for which plan of salvation that they preach. So do you see the problem we have here? Whenever you circumvent church authority, you will end up with a perverted gospel. And that fits perfectly with what I said earlier. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And anybody outside the church who takes it upon themselves to be the purveyor of truth will end up in heresy. It always results that way. Now, let's take a moment, though, and think about what happens when you put the gospel in the right hands. What happens with the gospel? Well, in the first century, uh, Paul and the apostles carried out the commission that was given by Christ, and they carried out their commission under church authority. If you have your Bible there, please, let's turn quickly to Acts chapter 13. This is the next to the last scripture that we'll consider tonight. But I want you to notice what, who sent Paul on the missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 13, I want you to look at verse number 1. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch, and you might underline the word church that was at Antioch there, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, do you notice there who did this? It was the church. The scripture says that these people in the church, they fasted and they prayed. The Holy Spirit answered their prayers and chose Saul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry to be sent out from this church. So the church got ready to send them out. They laid their hands on them, which was a symbol of the approval upon them, and they sent those two men away. Now, flip over a few pages to Acts chapter 17, verse number 6, and let's see what happened when they sent them out. Acts 17, verse 6. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Friends, this is what happens when you put the gospel in the right hands under the right authority. The only sustainable effects of the gospel will be had through the New New Testament, local New Testament church. All other organizations eventually die out. All the things that they teach die out. The organizations are gone. But there's only one group of people that sustains itself all the way from the beginning and all the way to the end. And that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the church has been granted perpetuity and only the church has been granted the authority to preach the gospel to the world. Now let me quote to you from my pamphlet, Why Should I Be a Member of the Church? It is only possible to partake in the full exercise of the commission, evangelizing the world and observing the ordinances, as we are members of the Lord's church. We obey the commission in our locality and as a church support the efforts of missionaries throughout the world. Thus we have fulfilled all of the commission. It is Christ's intention and his express command that the church fulfill the responsibility of evangelizing the world. So here we have the priority of the church. We have the truth upheld by the church. We have teaching. We have the ordinances. We have evangelism. And that's the reasons why you need to attach yourself to a New Testament church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his body. 
Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a different way, principles for devoted Christians. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we thank you for this blessed privilege that we have of being a part of your church. Thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to the truth of your word. And, Lord, you've, you've given us an opportunity that we can do your work in this world. We want to do it in the right way, the way that you have commanded. We want to carry out your ordinances. We want to preach the gospel. And, Lord, help us to always maintain and perpetuate this faith for our generation so it will be preached to those in the future. A blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.